Hi, welcome to the Sage's Cabin podcast. I'm your host, Rox Madeira. So grab a cup of tea and come and join me in the Sage's Cabin as we chat about everything from herbal gardening, herbal medicine, movement practices, wild food, postnatal and just general well-being. Hello and welcome to this month's podcast. Um, I actually meant to put this out last month, so I kind of managed to miss a month somehow. I don't know, time just seems to have flown by. But I hope you really enjoy this podcast. It is with Sam Bilton. She's a food historian. And we're talking about uh, saffron, which grew in the Britain in big doses in the medieval times, which is really interesting. It was a really interesting uh, topic, a really interesting talk. So as always, I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please like, share and subscribe. likewise I uh, know I'm good good thank you yeah yeah so I think maybe can we just start with um just you just saying about who you are and everything and like um what you do and then we'll get into the interesting history of saffron okay um I'm Sam Bilton I'm a food historian so I look at food from the past and how we ate and um in some cases how it influences how we eat today um, but yeah, all era is really everything from the ancient Romans right up to sort of post-war, um, well, up to the war, I suppose, realistically. I don't usually do an awful lot of stuff post-war, but uh, every now and then I dip my toe into sort of mid-20th century. <laughs> but most of the time I'm sort of in the sort of 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, 19th, uh, that sort of eras, those sort of eras. Mm, that's so interesting. I actually find it really, yeah, fascinating um, to try and imagine how people were eating <laughs> then, because it's I suppose it's quite different. Um, but how did what kind of what got you interested in saffron specifically? So my family are originally from Essex, specifically near Saffron Walden, and as I was growing up, I suppose I didn't really pay that much attention, partly because my mom and dad are from that area and they just refer to the town as Walden which most people in that area do but when I got older I started to wonder why is this town in Essex associated with the world's most expensive spice because it didn't seem logical that it would have been grown there um, but a case if as I found out that isn't the case it was grown very extensively in and around Saffron Walden in Cambridgeshire, parts of Essex and Suffolk and well, East Anglia, Norfolk, that those sort of areas. So, yeah, it was quite surprising. And that sort of started my journey into looking at saffron as um, a spice. Um, I love spices generally. I, my first book was on gingerbread. So, um, yeah, I was just really intrigued that say this, what we would consider today to be a very exotic spice that we associate with sort of Persian cuisine, um, and sort of Middle Eastern food, Indian food, uh, sort of made its way here, and um, not just made its way here, but was gro- actually grown here. Yeah, I know because I t- t- well, actually, I think I read a book a while ago about it being grown in Cornwall. Was that right? Did it get grown in Cornwall? 
Yeah, it did grow as far south as Cornwall. That's that's one of the interesting things about saffron is that, um, I mean, if you speak to people in this country, the modern day saffron growers, a lot of them will say, well, it surely wouldn't grow in Cornwall because Cornwall has its own sort of special microclimate, if you like. It's mm-hmm. it's in, it's actually very wet down there, um, but it is generally, not today, <laughs> uh, but it is generally very um mild down there and the soil is um it depends what part of Cornwall is it's like it all of Britain um it depends where exactly you are in Cornwall but they have uh, a, a soil uh, which is sort of slightly gravelly so it's free draining I mean saffron likes to be in free draining soil that's the important thing I live in Sussex um, now and um, where I live specifically whilst I can see the beautiful chalk downs from my house my garden is not chalk my garden is heavy clay and I try for many years to grow saffron in my garden with no success so I've currently got it in pots and it is at least growing although I haven't had any flowers yet so um, I may need to rethink that strategy. Oh that's what I was going to ask you yeah if you could grow it into because my my garden is the same it's like really really wet and really kind of not clay but it's more kind of boggy um yeah. But yeah, I think, yeah I wonder if you could grow it in pots and things if that would work well supposedly you can but I'm I know when I've done talks since the book's been come out I've met quite a few people have tried like me to grow it in pots and have had exactly the same um results so you we get what they call the, the leaves the grass the saffron grass but no bloom so I'm not entirely sure whether that's lack of nutrients or whether it's to do with um just not liking the pots they're in I mean certainly I put a lot of gravel in my pots and made sure that the soil was really free draining so it's I don't think it's a drainage issue and as I say the amount of leaves I have I'm pretty sure they're doing what they should do in because when uh, a saffron corn is planted there the the flowers themselves are sterile so they multiply um, in the ground so they're said to child. So you plant one saffron corm or bulb and it multiplies. And eventually after a few years, you end up that one bulb may have spawned up to 10 offspring. Um, it varies depending on the climate and the years. But uh, yes, I think I'm not sure I've got the hang of it. I, the only one a piece of advice I was given, because I do know that um, sometimes the bulbs get dug up by squirrels or eaten by mice. So I was advised to put some chicken wire over the top, which I did. So there's definitely something in there. It's not trans at the moment. It hasn't materialized into flowers, but they've only been in. This year was the first proper year that they they bloomed because I planted mine a bit late the previous year. So um, after sorry, last year, 22 was this year. So after this autumn in 23, if I still have no blooms, I may have to see if I can find somewhere somewhere in the garden that is free draining which could be yeah. tricky because <laughs> yeah, um, maybe they don't actually like where you've put them or something you know sometimes you have to kind of move them around a bit don't you as well yeah I mean they're in the veg garden which is the sunniest part of the garden but I'm I've got a lot of trees over uh looking my garden hence the covering them up to protect them from squirrels because yeah. I always have a lot of squirrels um so uh yeah it could be I don't know it's um yeah I, I think realistically they're probably happiest in the ground but they do like free draining soil so mm-hmm. to answer your question about Cornwall yes they were grown they are certainly grown in Cornwall certainly were grown it was grown in Cornwall for a long time and it still is being grown in Cornwall today okay yeah that was going to be my other question was uh are we still growing saffron here is, is it still growing in the UK 
So it it the the industry was really big, sort of from the fifth in the fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth centuries, and then in the eighteenth century it started to dwindle. Um, but it has been revived in recent years. We have saffron growers. Um, all over the country, we have, as I said, Cornwall. Uh, there's quite an, a few in East Anglia. So there's Norfolk saffron, uh, mm. Sandling saffron, which is in Suffolk, and then the English saffron country, uh, the English saffron company, which is based in and around Saffron Ward and that sort of area. And I believe David did have um, beds in Devon as well. Yeah. Um, and there's also saffron being grown as far north as Cheshire which is interesting because when I did my research, I couldn't find any, I didn't come across any records suggesting that it was growing that far north back in the day. Mm-hmm. But um, it is certainly now being grown up there. And I believe the Cheshire Saffron people, um, Doug and um, Pete Gould, have these, what is, they have quite, again, this free draining soil. So although the climate isn't perhaps as kind as it is in East Anglia, which is, tends to be very dry, um, they have the soil. They benefit from this wonderfully free draining soil. So, it, it's um, yeah. There's there's payoffs, I guess. For <laughs> you can't have everything, but it yeah. is grown very successfully in this country. Oh well, wow. okay. Um, and I presume is it quite a labour intensive um, process to harvest it because I mean it's pretty expensive, isn't it? As a spice. Yeah, so that's the thing. When people sort of say, you know, saffron's expensive, there's a reason that it's expensive and it is because of the harvesting. So nowadays there are certain things they can do. So in terms of preparing the soil, obviously that can be done mechanically uh, with rotivators and the rest of it. Um, And you can, if you're planting on a reasonably large scale, uh, I believe some saffron producers have used bulb planters like they use in um, Holland for planting bulbs and things but again they're quite expensive pieces of kit to hire or to um to use mm-hmm. uh, to buy so uh i think but i do believe most of the time they're planting their the saffron grounds by hand yeah. so that's labor intensive you basically you plant them generally about seven and a half centimeters apart and about seven and a half centimeters deep so yes, you could obviously probably find some mechanical way of digging the trench initially, but the actual putting the bulbs in is time consuming. But there is no shortcut when it comes to harvesting. Harvesting was always done by hand and it still is done by hand and it has it's very time specific. So saffron in this country, oh, it depends on the year. It's like everything, isn't it? Um, but it can start as early as late September. Generally, it seems to start in October. Um, and it runs for about four to six weeks on average. Again, some years it might be a little bit longer. Um, I know a lot of the growers now are trying to trying to work out some form of successional planting. Unfortunately, uh, saffron seems to be very much at the mercy of the elements in that respect. So it doesn't <laughs> doesn't necessarily. It's not quite like we can with our carrots, for example, or lettuces, where you can do successional planting. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very very seasonal, and when the flowers come out, they have to be harvested before they were. They used to say before they were fully blown but it's basically before they're fully open. So they're still closed up. So you go out early in the morning, you harvest the flowers, and then you have to pick out the um, stamens that are in the middle, the threads as they were known. Sometimes you see them referred to as chives in the center of the flower, those wonderful, beautiful red pendulums. If you've ever seen a picture of a saffron crocus, they're absolutely stunning. They have these lovely 
pale lilac petals and then these wonderful long um, pendulous red stamens but they have to be picked out by hand there's no shortcut and there never has been and that is why it is so expensive right yeah that makes sense (laughs) I um, was reading in your book as well about how people were um they used to like adulterate it quite a lot um and one of the one of the things I think you wrote was uh that they'd adulterate it with fibres of dried smoked beef, which I thought was kind of unusual. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, I guess, you know, when you have something that's so expensive, um, the the temptation to make what you, the small amount you have go a little bit further is, it must be, you know, it must have been incredibly tempting because you could make more money. Um it was quickly, I suppose it was better than almost than printing banknotes or forging coins because it was probably easier. Uh, the beef, yeah, that's an interesting one. So there were various tests you could do. Obviously, with saffron, um, you soak it and it leaches the colour. Well, if you put beef fibres in there, um, then they just just reconstitute and it and they obviously don't leach well certainly don't leach that beautiful yellow color that's for sure um so uh yeah that was one of them but the most common one is other plants so um you have marigold petals for example mm-hmm. we sometimes mix i i'm not sure i mean i know david um from English, David Smell from English Saffron. He said when he's been to, I think when he was in India, he found a stall selling saffron that turned out fibres that turned out to be nothing but paper. Um, Normally, I think the normal process if you're going to do counterfeit saffron is to mix some genuine saffron with your alternative product. So um, in terms of petals, you had the marigold petals. and then there's the south south thistle and there was something else i am so i'm not very good with my plants but it's um sonchus but that might be the the latin name for south thistle but anyway it's there were and safflower was the other big one which is um safflower is the other big one which is still used today i believe quite extensively um and i understand that it does leach a color Right. But it's not as intense as saffron. And it the one thing about saffron is that it, it is unique in its flavour and its aroma. Nothing else is there's no substitute for saffron. People have said to me before, you know, well, you know, saffron's expensive. What can I use as a substitute? And I'm like, well, if you're just after colour, turmeric will do the job, but it <laughs> is a completely different flavour profile. So yeah. you can't expect like for like. But yes, it was it was huge. It was definitely adulterated. I mean, it was a huge temptation. And there were other tricks, you know, they would, in terms of how it was processed to increase the weight because everything was done by weight. So they could like things like candle wax, butter, um, oil, uh, all added apparently to make your, because they were dried in cakes, which is yeah, slightly different how we get that, it. That sounded think. like an interesting process, how it was dried. Yeah. Case. So, I mean, another reason why it's so expensive is because um, nowadays we they use um, dehydrators, which mm-hmm. is, you know, um, you've probably seen them on programs like MasterChef and stuff. It's a pretty uh, similar process. You know, it's uh, uh, but back in sort of the 16th, 17th century, they were using kilns. So they would have these specially constructed kilns and, and in which were charcoal uh, fueled uh, because that was um the most smokeless fuel that they could find to 
heat these kilns up. And on top of these kilns, there would be um, a board and then you would with lined with papers and then you would have your saffron piled up in eventually it would form into a cake and then it would be I guess pressed effectively with another more papers and another board um, and then at first you would have to you would cook it for an hour and then you would flip your sandwich over and cook it for another hour and if you got through that first two hours generally they were like okay you're probably you're probably home dry and you, you nothing untoward is going to happen to your saffron cake but that wasn't dry at that point you still had to turn it every i think it was every hour every 30 minutes um and it it for 24 hours so it needed constant attention um and then at the end what you would get um is as quite a, a small i mean you were talking about pounds of i mean they talk about pounds of saffron stainers being um process like this and then you would end up with a, a, a quite condensed cake sally francis at norfolk saffron has tried replicating this um she's done lots of experimentation and she said it is it shrinks quite significantly but then you'd end up with this dense amount which is why you sort of when you see sort of apothecary measurements it's easier to understand because it, what we get now is what they would have known as hay saffron so the loose strands but it would have been quite a dense cake and it would have had to have been teased out to get like a penis worth um or whatever so so would yeah, it, have been, it was would it i mean i get like you're saying it's not wouldn't it have been all fluffy like it is now but would it have been like almost like a little small kind of chunks of it if it's like, like crumbs or something well it would have ended it would have ended up as a solid cake, a bit like a Weetabix, I suppose, eventually. Right. Uh, but okay. you would have must have been able to tease it out because most right. people yeah, wouldn't. That was, you know, if you had one cake, I mean, I have no idea how big these go. Unfortunately, don't tell you how big the resulting cake was. But going from what Sally said, although it shrinks quite a bit, you do get this, quite this dense cake. But she sort of says you can then it's all it is completely dry at this point. It has to be, otherwise it would rot. So yeah. this other way you wouldn't be able to store it. Uh, and then they would be able to tease it out. And you do see some recipes um, where, you know, or some accounts where you hear sort of people having to tease out a, a measurement of saffron. But yeah. it would have been, yeah, it would have been quite, it would have been pretty solid. So easy in that respect to transport. I mean, I, I don't know if you use saffron much, but it's it's considering how expensive it is, it's alarming at how easy it is to lose a few strokes. When yeah. you're taking a picture out of a drawer, um, which is not um, not great when I say given the cost of it. So, uh, yeah, you can see why it was popular to do it like that. And also it was easy for them to do it like that. I don't think they would have been able to very easily in this country dry it yeah. as hay saffron. Perhaps I don't know much about the Spanish methods, perhaps in places like Spain and Iran, they um, are able to do that naturally because of the heat and um lower humidity but i think in this country it wouldn't have worked because we would have had uh, been too humid and yeah um and possibly not well definitely not warm enough i wouldn't have thought yeah yeah I can, you can also you can understand why it's so expensive as well because i mean that's quite a big process to go through and also if you like lose do something wrong in those first two hours you'd be so raging when you like, lose your yeah i mean <laughs> richard bradley um who wrote wrote um, a number of books in the early 18th century he um he was quite interested in saffron production and he said it was a miracle that more saffron wasn't ruined i mean it just goes to show the skill of the saffron yeah. um 
dryers. I mean, I know Sally thinks that the dryers and the growers were probably separate, but I mean, she's talking from her own experience because she says it's so time consuming. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I do wonder whether it was perhaps another one, one of the jobs. So the harvesting was largely done by women and children. And I wonder whether the drying was also deemed to be perhaps female work. Um uh, who knows? I mean, they don't tell you an awful lot in these texts. So they're more concerned about the monetary value usually. But uh, yeah, it was it's it was definitely time consuming. And Bradley apparently was had developed. He speaks of developing a, a new method for drying saffron. But sadly, he died before he actually revealed. No one's ever no, found no. this document. So, um, where alas, it's that sort of. Uh, it continued to be dried in the fashion, you say, with the kilns for, and there were a couple of other methods, but that was commercial method um, back in sort of this 16th, 17th century. That's how it would have been dried. So when did that, when did that stop? When did they stop using that method? It's not so much they stopped, they stopped really cultivating it in this country widely. I mean, again, there may have been um, odd little pockets uh, of the country where they still grew saffron, on a small scale, but in terms of it being a, an identifiable crop, if you like, it really sort of died out um, in the 18th century. So by the time we get to the turn of the 19th century, it had all pretty much disappeared, but disappeared from East Anglia, which was the main area of production. So I think they um, there's one account that there was a John Knott in Duxford, which is in Cambridgeshire, and he was the last known documented saffron grower that we know about um and he died i think in 1827 but i think he he was like 90 years old or something he was a very old gentleman when he died so i suspect he had stopped growing it for some time before his death mm-hmm. um but yes it was it it just died out i mean i think there's a variety of reasons a taste changed we didn't use it quite so much in um cookery as we did in sort of the medieval era and through um, the 16th and into 17th centuries. Uh, I think also it was cheaper to import saffron from overseas. Uh, you, there is a significant difference between the price of English saffron and, say, Spanish saffron uh, listed in sort of the late 17th century. So, you know, that's eventually, if it's not being used as much or not, if you're the apothecary, which was the place you would go to buy it, the reasons for you to stock it or to buy it from England perhaps were, you know, you're not going to make quite so much money if marketplace is only prepared to pay a certain amount. So, um, and it, yeah, it did survive obviously in medicine for quite a while afterwards, but uh, in terms of cult- the culinary side of things, it we just, our taste changed and generally with spices anyway, we weren't using spices so prevalently in our cook- cooking uh, or not the same spices uh, as we were in, say, in the medieval era. No, oh, that's interesting. So we use more spices in the medieval era than in like the 18th century. Definitely. Oh wow. Okay. And is that so? Sorry, I, I'm sorry. I just had to take it. Yeah. No. The medieval. If you go, if you go back in a time machine, or if you could go back in a time machine, our food for the medieval era is, I guess, how we would identify today is being um, much more sort of Middle Eastern in flavour, um, I guess people would say it was very, very Ottolenghi. <laughs> it's, uh, it was, you know, lots of um, sort of warming spices, um, spice, I mean, it was 
if you were rich, it was a great way of ex- sort of demonstrating how rich you were to have highly spiced food. It was nothing to do with, you know, the whole rotten meat thing. That's absolutely rubbish. But uh, if the, you know, rotten meat was still rotten meat in whether you were in the 15th century or in the 21st century, uh, and no amount of spices improving that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, they were hu- it was hugely important. So you see, you know, right through sort of the Tudor and Stuart period, um, again, a lot of spices being used in dishes, things like cinnamon, pepper, ginger, a, a lot of ginger. Um, and then gradually things like allspice start to come on board. And saffron was used a lot. Saffron was also important because it's so colourful uh, and colour was hugely important in the medieval um, cuisine as well. And so it was a great way of gilding food. So if you wanted to make, you know, gold Saffron's expensive, but gold's even more expensive. So if you wanted to make your food look golden, um, you added saffron. Um, I'm not saying turmeric didn't exist, but it's it was saffron that was the main spice that was used. So you would have batters that were produced to baste birds, for example, roasted birds. So you would end up with golden chickens uh, or things like golden apples, which were basically massive meatballs, which have been um, coated in this wonderful batter and then sort of quickly cooked in uh, an oven or in front of a fire to seal the batter. And then they would just be these wonderful golden globes that uh, would be presented with perhaps a bay leaf stuck in the top as an apple. So, yeah, it was uh, as yeah, it was hugely important. But then it sort of, sort of fell out of favour and gradually we ended up with more um, uh, sort of it was it sort of remained in sorry my doorbell's gone sorry um so gradually it was sort of faded from savory dishes quite so much and then it was still in prevalent in sweet things particularly cakes or what they called cakes we would probably think of them now as sort of spice brioche type confections but uh yeah yeasted cakes and um occasionally biscuits and things like that okay and like was it mostly the the kind of upper class the rich that were using the spices and saffron or, or with that the kind of the normal common people using it as well uh saffron was i mean it was hugely expensive as I've, uh, we've already discussed so it was really a, in terms of food it appeared in the dishes it appeared in this would have been dishes that were aimed at the sort of the richer people um, particularly when we're talking about savoury dishes, so like the gilded chickens, for example, mm-hmm, yeah. or um, stews and things and pottages included saffron. But when it came to, say, feast buns, for example, um, particularly in places like Cornwall, you might find bakers on, for special occasions like Good Friday would include saffron in their bread doughs or yeasted um, sort of cakes so that people may have been able to afford to buy a a bun for example for a special occasion but they were they generally going out and buying in the 15th and 16th 17th centuries uh, with the general population going out and buying saffron as an ingredient I would be very surprised if they could afford it because it was so expensive what about Um, the the other spices and things would they be using those the common people Again, it's uh, we. Uh, that's the trouble. The documentation that is left um, is, you know, most of the cookbooks. So when you think of like um, the accomplished cook by Robert May, which was published in the 17th century, they uh, they would say that 
that sort of cookery is purely reflecting the high end, you know, rich people, um, royal cookery almost. So uh, it's hard to say categorically that they didn't use it. Um, it's possible. But again, they would all spices were expensive. The chances are if spices were used, I would suspect they were being used more for medicine than anything else. So, um, yes, sorry, I'm just quitting my mail so it stops dinging. Um, so I suspect it was it would have been used more for medicine mm-hmm. um, if they were going to buy them and then they would go to the apothecary. But even then, I suspect that if they went to an apothecary, if they were not didn't have much money, um, I would imagine that they were buying a ready-made concoction um, rather than um, a cordial or something like that that was already prepared Mm -hmm. um, in a small scale to treat whatever ailments they needed to get. Although I think realistically most people were probably, particularly in the country, relying on the services of someone um, like a, a a cunning woman. I'm not going to use the W word because I don't like that. I think it's very um, insulting. But uh, there were obviously there was a lot of uh, local knowledge um, in villages, and there would have been people there that had uh, the knowledge of which herbs to use. Whether they would have also have used spices, it's hard to say. Possibly, but again, they would have been so expensive. So. Um, it, in my mind, seems unlikely, but I'd say I'm more of a culinary historian than a, a medical historian. So it's hard to categorically say, I think, for, for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. But you do have in your book something about the medical use of um, saffron. Would, could you talk a bit about yeah. that? Yeah, so it's the, yeah, I mean it was it's a you could I could have written an entire book or someone could write an entire book on the medical uses of saffron because it was uh prized as a, a, a medical ingredient, as were a lot of as they used to call them simples. So whether they were herbs, spices, um they were valued for their medicinal properties. Everything had um so we were governed by humoral theory, so we it was which is a, a, a they, most doctors sort of in the 15th century onwards were following this Galenic theory where you had the four humours, which were black bile, yellow bile, phlegm and blood, um, blood being the most common one in our body. But they all had to be, they all had their own properties between hot and dry, moist and um hot, dry, moist and cold. There you go. Um, so it was, everything had its own qualities and if you had an ailment so if you had a fever the idea was that you would treat that fever with something with opposing qualities mm-hmm. so a fever makes you may hot and wet if you're sweating so you'd want something cold and dry an ingredient that was cold and dry to sort of remedy um, and balance out your humors that's how medicine or med- medicinal theory works so saffron was renowned for being um i think hot and dry and so it was used in but I mean it's one of these things you when you read the list of complaints it could treat it ranged from everything from um you know basically eye complaints right through to consumption um you see saffron cropping up a lot in um things like uh sort of cordials were a popular thing to take so originally cordials weren't like we think of now sort of a, as a social drink although they did become a social drink but they were 
quite often a lot of these tinctures and cordials were used to treat things like melancholy for example you'll see recipes for melancholy and quite often they include saffron now there was one um a Dutch chap who believed that if you ate too much saffron, you would die of laughing. <laughs> like that someone in Spain had died of laughing because it made you happy. Mm -hmm. So you can see perhaps why that the whole link between melancholy came about. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was also other things that it was supposed to treat um wandering womb, which was um they believed that the womb wandered around the body. Um, and attached itself to other organs. Um, and I, I say I'm not med I'm not a medical professional, but I understand that uh, with certain types of endometriosis, that is actually we laugh about that sort of theory at the moment. Yeah. But uh, in, nowadays, but actually, I think with some types of endometriosis, yeah. there is some evidence that you get it. Not so much the womb wandering, but that you yeah. can affect other organs. Right. So. So with that, you can again, you sort of think, oh, okay. So that was, you know, again, saffron. I mean, it wasn't exclusively saffron. I should say that it was included in like compounds that were mixed together and used to treat things. Um, like I say, it, wide ranging, everything from, I say, if you could, the Romans, for example, we used it a lot for eye salves. So if you had sore eyes, um, but it was, you know, consumption was a big one. Um, the plague, there was another one. Um, then uh, the, as I mentioned, melancholy, it often appears in um, laudanum, um, preparations of laudanum, although I do wonder whether it was used more for the colour in that instance. Um, yeah, it's so it was used quite a, quite extensively. So, again, that's one of the reasons why that if you wanted to get some, it was the apothecary that you visited. And I believe that, you know, for a long time, if you wanted to buy saffron, even into sort of the 19th, 20th, early 20th centuries, quite often that was the place, a bit like olive oil, I suppose, back before we all started drizzling on our salads. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so one thing we didn't actually talk about was how it actually, how did it come over here in the first place? How did it start growing? Well, I mean, I always think of, yeah, because like you say, you always just think of it like, because I'm Iranian and we use saffron in our cooking. And that's where I just kind of think of it as being from. You never really think about yeah. it being in the UK. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it came, it's, well, it's, again, it's one of those things where nobody's absolutely certain how it got here. And there are a number of theories. Um, so th the main theories are um, that the first one, which is often touted, you'll hear in Cornwall, is it was the Phoenicians that brought it to Cornwall. Now, we know that the Phoenicians were great traders. They traded all across the Mediterranean. So ancient Phoenicia sort of roughly corresponds to sort of um, Libya and Syria today, uh, that sort of area of um, the Middle East. And they brought, they did trade all, all across, they had a huge influence across the Mediterranean. And they used to make a lot of bronze work for which they needed tin. And the story goes that they were looking for a new source of tin that they'd exhausted their supplies in Spain um, when they used to be based at uh, what is now known as Cadiz. Uh, Cadiz, it was it used to be known as Gadis. And they travelled, they were supposed to be travelling to Brittany, but for some reason decided to bypass Brittany and ended up in Cornwall. And because they had no coinage, um, they traded, they bartered effectively the Cornish tin for saffron. But unfortunately, because the Phoenicians, oh, well, that period of history, there is no archaeological evidence to support that because any, you know, saffron's an organic 
item at the end of the day. Um, so any saffron that had been transported at that in that way hasn't survived if the, you know a store had you know and there's very little evidence i believe that the phoenicians were actually in um cornwall nothing that's been discovered yet anyway so um the next one is the romans because everything one blames the romans for everything from roads to you know you name it if it's if it's uh, you know people like say oh yeah that was the romans brought that to britain and it's possible you know the romans did use saffron and they used to spray it in their theatres as a perfume because they appreciated the scent. Um, not so widely that we know of in cookery, Apicius, uh, the big famous cookery document, I say big, the famous cookery doc manuscript um, attributed to the famous room, uh, the Roman gourmet. Um, it, it's not used widely in there. There's a few recipes in there um, that include saffron, but it's not, it's not used widely, not enough to say that for sure they would have brought it here mm -hmm. from a culinary perspective. But we do know that they love flowers um, and they had these wonderful tomb gardens. So it's possible that um, it was brought over by them for use in those gardens or even in their kitchen gardens for personal use. I mean, we know that at places like Fishbourne Palace in Sussex, that there has been an area identified around the 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 ruins of the villa that they think was a kitchen garden but again organic matter it's really hard for them to say ca categorically what was grown there mm -hmm. um, and how it was used uh and then lastly we have the one that is touted the most is the pilgrim that brought it smuggled one saffron corn back from um the holy land and as a consequence, the whole saffron industry in Britain blossomed. But as I always say to people, one saffron corn does not a harvest make. I mean, I know I said they child, but it takes a long time from that one corn. It would take, I mean, <laughs> even now we would be have have a saffron industry based on that one corn. If it was, it's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's my view is that it probably did come, each of those stories possibly has truth in it. Um, I think realistically, it probably came from trade with Spain. Is my gut feel? Okay. And, and obviously, the Phoenicians had influence in Spain, and so did the Romans. So, mm -hmm. uh, and there was an important pilgrimage route there as well to uh, Santiago de Compostela. So, um, that's that's yeah. my theory. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're, they're, so nobody knows for sure. But we do know that it was started to be grown extensively after the Black Death in the mid fourteenth century. And that's when it really started to skyrocket. It, it, it probably was grown here before then, particularly monasteries. But in terms of its mass, when I say mass production, put it in context, it wasn't ever grown as extensively as, say, wheat or barley. But I, it, after we do know that after the Black Death, production of saffron increased and it became recognised as a a product or a commodity in, in its own right. And saffron walden was used to be known as Chepping Walden in that period. By the early 16th century, it was so renowned for the saffron production and selling saffron that that's when the name was changed by um, a royal charter by Henry VIII. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. It's interesting that it kind of came about after that. I wonder if, like, even just subconsciously, people kind of needed a bit after the kind of all that death and the Black Death, that people need a bit of, I don't know, cheering up, you know, because it's... Yeah. <laughs> It's a very happy kind Pro of mysterious plant, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, probably. I mean, it'd be nice to think it was just cheer them up. I mean, the fact of the matter is there were fewer people in the country, so there was yeah. less labour, but also um, there was less demand for food. So people yeah. could experiment with growing these more lucrative crops. I mean, it was never and still isn't grown in, I mean, we're not talking about swathes of land here, as I say, it was never cultivated in the same level as um, wheat. Typically, a saffron plot is a, a rood, which is about a quarter of an acre. So right. it's, it's um, sorry, yeah, it's about a quarter of an acre. It's not that, it's, it, well, it doesn't sound very big, but when you consider it's all hand-grown, basically, it's everything is a very hands-on crop and a very yeah. back-breaking crop as well to both plant and then cultivate. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, you can understand why they didn't want to have swathes of land doing that, but that's why it sort of took off. There was the opportunity was presented for this alternative form of agriculture as a result of the Black Death. Um, so, yeah, it's it was just, I think the opportunity was there and people made the most of it. Yeah. And um, so what do you think makes saffron kind of special, to, like British saffron particularly special? Well, it's, I mean, it's extremely high quality. I mean, there's no, there's absolutely no chance that any uh, of the saffron producers here would even, I mean, they wouldn't even entertain the idea of trying to put fake saffron in it. But it is, I mean, it's it's, well, it's always nice to support local supply, suppliers, but it is good quality. I mean, I can't deny I've tried saffron from all over the world. Um, it's just, you know, it's, you get the beautiful stamens. Um, I, I say in the book that, you know, if you want to, yeah, this a classic thing is in a pinch of saffron. You see so many recipes with a pinch of saffron in, and it's you know my pinch is not going to be the same as your pinch. Mm. So a lot of the saffron growers I spoke to when I started researching this project would say that you need to count the saffron strands out. Now if you buy saffron in a supermarket, they tend to have been all crushed up by the time you get your packet home, or by the time it reaches your sort of cupboard. So it's hard to do that, but with English saffron. Um, you can do that. It's very easy to pick out the individual strands. And it's, I mean, it smells wonderful. It's a beautiful colour it gives. I think, you know, yellow is a joyous colour. So it does cheer you up immensely, I think, when you have yellow food. Um, I personally love the flavour of saffron. I think, I suspect that some people have a similar reaction to saffron as they do, um, uh, for example, coriander. Uh, in terms of that they find it uh, a bit soapy and uh, not very pleasant taste. I don't. Uh, and I, I do say in my book, you know, I, I'm very generous with my saffron. But uh, I also do say to people, you know, um, some people are a bit too cautious, I think. I know I'm, I met someone recently at a talk and he, he said he uses like two or three strands of saffron to colour a rice dish. And I'm like, it, I, it can barely make any difference. I mean, you, it's, it's potent stuff, but it's not that potent. So I did say to him, Jim, next time use a bit more. And he goes, but it's so expensive. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you don't say you have to use it every day. I mean, obviously when I was testing the recipes, I pretty much was, but, you know, most people don't use it on a daily basis. Yeah. So, you know, it's a luxury item and, you know, you can be, I think, be quite bold with it um, without, having any detrimental effect on your final dish yeah i think so <laughs> and then um, so your book has it has quite recipes at the end doesn't it? a big chapter of different recipes yeah recipes that that you've kind of come up with or are they kind of historical recipes or a mixture or 
So the recipes are based on historic, mostly based on historical sources. There are one or two where I've used inspiration, for example, from, you know, my imagination, but most of them are based on historical sources. Now, it's easy, as I always say, when I talk about food history, to recreate something from the 19th century, because one, you have better instructions, you usually have measurements, which is tremendously helpful. But when you're looking at recipes from, say, the medieval era, quite often, it is just a list of ingredients and it's like boil them together and serve it and that's it and that's no indication of timings no indication of quantities um so some of them are a little more uh inspired by shall we say rather than verbatim copies and a lot of the time you have to use your judgment and obviously i've cooked a lot of historic food in my life so um you know i i don't as i say to people i don't beat egg whites for eight hours <laughs> I have an electric whisk and I use a, an electric whisk for that. Um, so they've been modernised and people can use them in the, in their own kitchens. And also, you know, but trying to preserve the flavour of the dish. If it's, you know, quite a deviation, I do sort of say, you know, this is inspired by, but it's very different from the original dish. Um, because at the end of the day, historical food is wonderful, but we had limited ways of cooking our food and a lot of things were cooked in pots potages um so you know it's, you, there's only so many stews you want to have in one book for example so, so some of the some of the potages have been reimagined in other forms shall we say but most of them most of the recipes are pretty as near as i can possibly get keep them to the original as far as i can know so for a lot of the baked good, goods for example the um, for example, there's a, a, an 18th century recipe for Sarah Harrison's saffron cakes, which are basically saffron buns, and they're flavoured with coriander seeds, which mm. is people are quite surprised at. But actually, it was really common to include caraway and coriander seeds in this sort of uh, it's like a brioche, basically a saffron brioche bun, um, and it rather than dried fruit. So it's the dried fruit did exist, but it or currants predominantly, but uh, it was also very common to have saffron um uh sort of sorry coriander or caraway seeds and included with saffron as well not instead of and they really do make a lovely aromatic bun mm. that's exciting that sounds nice um so where where can people like contact you or get your book from or anything like that so you can find out more about my um, books um, at my website, sambilton.com, um, or you can buy it through the usual channels, um, sort of large online retailers. Um, I believe other retailers stock it, <laughs> um, but you can also get it from some independent bookshops. I can pretty much guarantee if you want to support your independent bookshop and they don't have it in stock, then they should be able to order it. It's available in terms of their supply chains. They would be able to order it, no problem. That's great. Thank you so much. That was really, really interesting. Really, yeah, I'm, just, I'm really interested in the whole food history thing. It's really fascinating. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye.